you realize that he was starting to run out of jackets. We, you know, it got to the point where even in the cold weather, he would just wear a little hoodie sweatshirt. That hoodie sweatshirt would disappear, and then he'd have to borrow one of mine. We were wondering what in the world was happening. At the end of the spring semester, it was time for uh, him to sort of clean out his locker and, uh, and to try to find some of those missing sweatshirts and jackets. And so he came ho- home one day, and he had six jackets and sweatshirts with him. Four of those jackets had been found in the lost and found, and two of the sweatshirts had been found at the very bottom of his locker. Fortunately, he was able to find those missing jackets. Now, we have a little series we're beginning today, and we're calling it Lost and Found. If uh, any of you are familiar with Scripture, you know that there is this theme of lostness and wandering in the wilderness and in the desert throughout all of Scripture. We know that Jesus came to, to seek and to save those who are lost. And so there's this great theme of being lost and found. Today, we're going to be looking at this theme of a lost generation who wandered in the desert, in the wilderness, when they refused to enter into the promised land. Before we begin, let me take a moment, however, and let's pray. Father, thanks very much that you have each of these people in this room this morning. Father, I pray that um, as we go through our wanderings, as we inevitably will, Father, even as you will lead us into our own um, wildernesses and our own deserts, Father, I pray that we would learn the lessons that you have for us there. Father, I pray that um, in the desert, in the wilderness, that we would not rely upon our own strength, that we would not rely upon our own coping mechanisms or our own wisdom, but rather we would trust in you, our good Father, and in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us uh, in this room probably know more about World War II than we do about World War I. In some respects, World War I gets passed over sometimes. But World War I began in 1914. In the summer of 1914, um, crowds gathered all across Europe in big cities, London and Vienna and in Berlin, and there was a triumphalistic mood sort of around this pre-war uh, moment. Crowds would sort of cheer. They were looking forward to sort of this, uh, this upcoming battle, and people thought, surely this is going to be over in no time. Both sides probably had those beliefs. All over Europe, what you would see is you'd see governments and you'd see newspapers, and they would be uh, ushering sort of motivational speeches and messages and calls, particularly to the young men of those countries. On August the 5th, the Birmingham Daily Mail in England featured a call to arms on its front page. I'm going to read it. Your king and country need you, the advertisement started. In this crisis, your country calls on all her young unmarried men to rally around the flag and enlist in the ranks of her army. If every patriotic young man answers her call, England and her empire will emerge stronger and more united than ever. Many of you will know that during the four years of World War I from 1914 to 1918, over 40 million people, many of which were young men, most of which were young men, were killed and wounded. All over Europe, young men trudged home after the armistice on November 11th, 1918. But the optimism of those early days of that first summer was gone forever. It was an unprecedented uh, sort of loss in its scale and its destructive power. As communities tried to recover after the war, civilians and soldiers both looked around at the destruction of their countries and at the places that were once occupied by friends and family who had been killed in the fighting. The poet and novelist Gertrude Stein is credited with giving the young men of World War I the name, the Lost Generation, the Lost Generation. 
Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who many of you know is the author of The Lord of the Rings, also fought in World War I. Uh, that war took a great toll on him, and the echoes of trauma appear throughout his writings. Tolkien later reflected that by the end of the war, and this is a quote, all but one of my close friends were dead. All but one of my close friends were dead. Experiences like Tolkien's were actually common. Britain and Ru Russia lost around 2% of their total population in the war. Germany, France, and Austria lost about 4% each. Some nations, such as the Ottoman Empire, Serbia, and Romania, lost as much as 15% of their populations. And you can imagine walking through those European countries after the war and noticing just how few young men there were. It was indeed, in Stein's word, a lost generation. The story of the lost generation of World War I is a heartbreaking tale. I'm sure that World War II and Vietnam and even the current Russia-Ukraine conflict have and will have their own lost generations as well. In the Bible, however, we read of another lost generation. The Old Testament records the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And towards the end of that time, God called Moses to free his people from their slavery. And finally, the Pharaoh at the time, likely Ramses II, relented and he allowed nearly 2 million Israelites to leave Egypt and to make their way towards the promised land. The Israelites made it to the boundary of Canaan within four months. There, overlooking the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies to explore the land. You guys may be familiar with this story. The spies returned not long later carrying poles with grapes and figs and pomegranates while reporting that the land that, the, that God had promised them was indeed a land flowing with milk and with honey. Their report, however, was not all good news. It wasn't all positive. In Numbers 13, we read more of their feedback. It says this. It says, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. At this point, Moses, the spies, and the children of Israel were faced with a choice. Trust in God's provision, his presence, and his promises, or turn away in fear. We know from the Numbers account that 10 of the 12 spies chose the latter. They made that latter choice. As a result of their doubt and their disbelief, what happened was is that a bad report began to flow throughout the people, the Israelites, who then began to grumble and to complain against Moses and Aaron, even going so far as to accuse God of leading them to their demise. They said this, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, again, if you guys have ever read um, the story of the Israelites, you know that this is not a particularly good look. How quickly they had forgotten how God had rescued them from Egypt, from slavery. How quickly they had forgotten how he had gone before them and behind them in a pillar of fire and smoke in the wilderness how quickly they rejected God's guidance, and how quickly they were ready to return to slavery. As a result, they were doomed to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until the older unbelieving generation had died out, leaving the younger generation to enter the promised land. They, those, uh, that generation of Israelites, became 
a lost generation of Israel. So what should we take away from this lost generation wandering in the wilderness? I think the first thing that I would like for us to look at is that the wilderness reveals the depth of our sin. The wilderness reveals the depth of our sin. The Bible often uses the metaphor, uh, metaphors of the valley, the wilderness, the desert, to describe moments in the Christian life. The valley represents a place of anxiety. It's a fear of enemies and ambushes. It's a fear of thieves and robbers. Psalm 23, of course, reads this. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. The wilderness is still about fear, but it's also a place of desperation and doubt. Is there going to be enough food? Where are we going to find water? Are we even heading in the right direction? Both the valley and the wilderness are places where God, however, does his best and maybe most meaningful work. Often God's best and most necessary work in the wilderness is to enable us to actually see our sin, to see the depth of our sin. We know, I think, intuitively, that when there's plenty of food and plenty of water to drink, when our health is good and when we happen to be sleeping great, when our marriage is going well and work is also going well, that it's easy to think we have life figured out, right? That's a normal response. It's the equivalent of having an easy baby and thinking you're a great parent. The easy baby joke is essentially, thank you very much, May Pierce. The easy baby joke is, well, Chris and I had a, a difficult first baby. Um, Sam was a, a great young man, but he was not an easy baby. He cried for the first 10 months. And uh, he, everybody was, you know, would talk about how your baby had the I'm hungry cry and the I'm sleepy cry and what are, you know, the various cries. And we were like, we don't know what you're talking about. Our baby has one cry and it is <laughs> wrath, it's fury. Um, and then it's funny, at 10 months, he started to walk and uh, just became the easiest, he became great. He was a lot easier at that point in time. It's funny, we waited about three years till we had May because we were kind of worn out, to be honest with you. And when we had May, May was an easy baby. In fact, I remember vividly, Sam never wanted to be put down. He always wanted to be held. And, uh, and when we had May, and she was, you know, six months older, so I remember singing to her um, in her little room next to her crib and kind of rocking her. And uh, after a few moments, she would point at her crib. And she, in essence, she'd be saying, hey, good enough, Dad. Can you go ahead and put me down? <laughs> Which ironically would become a theme for the rest of our life um, <laughs> in some ways. Anyway, the point is, you know, again, the second baby sometimes reveals, it's the struggle and the hardship of the difficult child that reveals to you, like, oh, I am not the parent that I thought I was. I'm not the selfless human that I thought I was. Sometimes in the metaphorical wilderness, we discover what's really inside of us. That's definitely what we see happening with the Israelites in the wilderness. Almost immediately after leaving Egypt, the Israelites are overwhelmed by fear and doubt, and they begin complaining. That's a theme throughout the the, uh, the story of their wandering. In Exodus 14, we read this. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. If you know the Exodus story, you'll know that the very next day, God allowed them to cross over the Red Sea on dry land. And three days later, they began complaining again. I guess they forgot what God had done for them. This time, it was about food and water. 
In Exodus 16, we read this, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You could hear Jesus saying, O ye of little faith. And we haven't even gotten in this story yet to the creation of the golden calf while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai from God. There, the Israelites decided that rather than serve an invisible God, they would create a tangible idol so they could fit in with all the people around them. And all this was even before they reached the promised land for the first time. This all happened within that fourth month, four-month period of time. And we've already seen what happened when they got to the promised land. Though God had come through for them time and time again, they chose to listen to their fear instead of listening to the voice of God. Of the 12 spies, only Joshua and Caleb argued that the people should trust in God's provision for them. Listen to a transcript of their interaction from Numbers 14. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephthuna, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Joshua and Caleb's speech there is like something you'd see in the movie Braveheart, where William Wallace stirs up his people for battle. You would expect that after that rousing speech that they would be ready or prepared to run through a brick wall, but that is not what we see. In the very next verse, we, re we read how the people responded. It says this in verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Joshua and Caleb's reward for being faithful to God, for trusting in his promises, they almost got stoned, killed for trusting in God. I'm pretty sure there's a uh, lesson for leadership in that story somewhere. Fortunately, God intervened and saved them. But for the next 40 years, that generation was doomed to wander in the desert and the wilderness laid bare the sin that was in them. We really don't have time to go into all the stories. In some respects, when you read that sort of entire narrative of them, of them wandering in the wilderness, it's not unlike reading the book of Judges, if you've ever read the book of Judges. It's, it's a record, a story filled with almost unfathomable sinness of God's very own people. When I was younger, I remember, you know, reading through the Bible, and, uh, and I remember being very judgmental towards the Israelites. I remember I had contempt for their failures. I had contempt for their character flaws. That's probably because at 21 years old, I hadn't spent much time in the wilderness myself. At 51, however, I've made a few trips into the desert. The wilderness moments of life have a way of revealing what's really inside of us, our doubts, our fears, our idols, our coping mechanisms, our addictions, but mostly what the wilderness reveals is our white-knuckled determination not to trust in God and to instead take matters into our own hands, whatever the cost. Let me give you a challenge uh, here at this moment. In the wilderness moments of life, we do have a choice to make. We can either look outward or we can look inward. And if we look outward, we're usually tempted to blame. We're tempted to blame our husband. We're tempted to blame our wife. We might be tempted to blame our boss, or maybe we blame the system. 
Maybe we blame the economy, maybe we blame social media, and undoubtedly there is some blame to go round. That's not untrue, but usually blaming actually doesn't do much good, and oftentimes we blame and look towards things that we can't control. In the desert moments of life, instead, I invite us, myself included, to look inward, to allow the wilderness to reveal what we are most terrified to see. In the words of Carl Jung, which I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that which you most need to see will be found where you least wish to look. That which you most need to see will be found where you least want to look. Jung is simply restating a principle that Jesus taught his disciples to look at the plank in their own eye before looking at the sawdust in someone else's. God has a great gift to give us in the wilderness if we are willing to receive it. So, point one, the wilderness reveals the depth of our sin. It's invisible to us, but oftentimes the wilderness makes it visible. The second point this morning is the wilderness reveals the depth of our longing, our desire. Many of you are familiar with St. Augustine's thesis that sin is ultimately disordered love or disordered loves. It's the idea that sin is where we love things, but we love them in the wrong order. And so we love our job maybe more than we love our wife. We love our own safety more than we love our family. We love pleasure more than we love honor. Our loves, when we sin, as Augustine rightly discerned, are clearly out of order. But how did Augustine arrive at that conclusion? How did he arrive at such insight? And the answer is that he found that insight in the desert, in the wilderness. Listen to how philosopher David Noggle describes Augustine's formative years. I'm going to read this quote. Augustine's personal life so painfully and honestly depicted in his confessions, shows him in a strange and disturbing way to be very similar to our late 20th century selves. Using current psychological jargon to describe his background, a prima facie reading of his confessions reveals that he grew up in a dysfunctional family, suffered through a childhood of unhappiness, was prone to theft and dishonesty, abhorred study and formal education, was virtually addicted to sex and food, enjoyed the life of the theater, theater and cabaret, studied offbeat philosophies and religions, and for a time was a single parent. His life was unquestionably disordered. And like many of our contemporaries, he found himself on a relentless course in search of healing and happiness. In other words, part of what Noggle is pointing out there is that part of the reason that, uh, that Augustine learned so much of what he learned is because his own life was a metaphorical desert. In Augustine's work entitled Soliloquies, he has an an imaginary conversation with reason personified. I'm going to read this little section very quickly. Reason asks Augustine, he says, now what do you want to know? And Augustine responds by saying, all those things which I prayed for, to which reason responds, sum them up briefly. Augustine responds, I desire to know God and the soul. Nothing more? absolutely nothing. If I can offer my interpretation, my summary, what Augustine was saying there is that he longed to know God, and he longed to know what made humans tick, right? What made them operate. His answer, at least in part, was that what makes his soul tick was an ongoing battle of disordered loves in his own heart. And that discovery for Augustine was discovered again in the wilderness of life. 
as you read through the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, what you'll see is you'll actually see a litany of desires driving them to and fro here and there. Just for example, let's go back to Numbers 14, which we quoted earlier, and you'll be able to see the deep desires of the people. Verse 3 reads this, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What was it that they were desiring? They were desiring safety. That's a good thing. And they were desiring to protect and provide for their families. Again, those are good things. What about when Moses disobeyed God in Numbers 20 by striking the rock instead of speaking to it as God had commanded him? Most commentators agree that Moses struck the rock because he was frustrated, or aka angry, with the Israelites' constant complaining. And if that's true, then it's likely that what Moses desired was for the children of Israel to treat God and also him with honor. Both of those would be valid, deep desires, but ultimately his desire for honor led him to disobey God. It's often in the wilderness that we discover the things that we deeply long for. Again, when life is easy, you're just sort of oblivious to those deep desires. In Saving Private Ryan, we see Private James Ryan enduring the wilderness of World War II. He loses three brothers. He loses countless friends, men that died to save him. And at the end of his life, while visiting the grave of the man who died to save him, he turns to his wife and he says to her, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. The wilderness revealed that what he desired was to be an honorable man, to be a man of honor. When I received my cancer diagnosis, things became crystal clear to me. What was most important to me was walking with God, loving my family well, and serving the people of Seven Hills Fellowship. My deep desire was to, to come through for God and to come through for those that I loved. The wilderness of a painful marriage reveals that we deeply long for. What we deeply long for is to be known, to be seen, to be chosen. The wilderness has a way of revealing those things that we deeply desire. So to recap, the wilderness reveals the depths of our sin. The wilderness reveals the depths of our desire. And finally, the wilderness reveals the depths of our need. If you've ever been to a real desert before, you realize immediately how tenuous life is in the wilderness, in a desert. The Sahara Desert averages over 100 degrees during the day, but then the temperature drops 75 degrees at night to an average low of 25 degrees. And so during the day, you can die of heat stroke, but at night, you can freeze to death. The Sahara average only, averages only three inches of water per year, and so finding water is almost impossible. Food is almost just as scarce. It's a miracle that anything or anyone can survive there. And so when you're in a real desert or when you're in a metaphorical one, what happens is, is that that context reveals what you most need, what you really need. In Exodus 14, Moses reveals what the children of Israel needed, God's power, his protection. Verse 13 says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Freedom from slavery. 
conquering Pharaoh, surviving in the wilderness, none of those things were due to their strength, their wisdom, or their resolve. Instead, their survival was because God would fight for them. Their job was to be still. What they most needed was to step back and to let God fight on their behalf. Many of us need to learn that lesson as well. What the Israelites also needed was to learn to trust in God's promises. They learned the lesson, that lesson in the wilderness also. We read in Deuteronomy 8 the following, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As Jesus pointed out to the Samaritan woman, and as he turned, uh, pointed out to the disciples, when we eat physical food and when we drink physical water, we will hunger and we will thirst again. But the spiritual food and water, the word of God that God provides, his word, his truth, those things will deeply satisfy us. They'll meet our deepest needs. Finally, in the desert, we realize that what we need most is not just God's provision, it's not just God's word, but what we need most of all is God himself. In Numbers 14, Moses warns the Israelites of the futility of moving forward without God. He says to them, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You'll be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. What we see throughout this entire narrative is that what the children of Israel needed most was God himself. In his book, A Praying Life, by uh, Paul Miller, he makes that very point. He writes this. He says, God takes everyone he loves through a desert. It is his cure for our wandering hearts, restlessly searching for a new Eden. The best gift of the desert is God's presence. The protective love of the shepherd gives me courage to face the interior journey. I love how Miller phrases that quote. Regardless of how we get there, God ultimately takes everyone that he loves through a desert. In the desert, God shows us the sin that has been invisible to us, but has been destroying us and destroying those that we love. In the wilderness, God shows us our deepest desires that drive us to and fro, to be loved, to be chosen, to be safe, to rest, to find a place called home. And finally, in the desert moments of life, God reveals himself to us. He becomes real to us in the desert. We discover in the wilderness that we are not alone. Even Jesus had to go into the wilderness we're told that for 40 days and 40 nights he went without food. And at the end of his time in the desert, Satan came and tempted him. In the wilderness, Jesus succeeded precisely where he knew that we would fail. Like the Israelites, we grumble, but Jesus surrendered. We fall, but Jesus stood strong. We are faithless, but Jesus was faithful. In the wilderness, we are reminded that our ultimate hope is only found in Jesus, who lived this perfect life for us, who died a perfect death.
for us.